Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, presented by Boston Women in Media and Entertainment, sponsored by Tech Help Boston. I'm feeling very fortunate to be sitting here in the gorgeous home of one of the most exceptional women I have ever known. As the first full-time arts reporter critic in the United States, she broke down barriers for women in television, while at the same time elevating the importance of the arts in our lives. The list of awards that she has won would literally fall off the largest table you could find. And when you hear her story, you'll know why she is so respected and loved by so many people. She's a wife, she's a mother, she's a daughter, she's a sister. She's a three-time cancer survivor and a trusted friend. Her name is Joyce Culhaywick, and this is her story. Joyce, welcome to the show. Hi, Candy. Did you like your introduction? Oh my gosh, that was, that was, I was thinking, who is this? I want to meet her. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me in your home You're today. You're welcome. I want to hug you, but we are six feet away from each other. We are practicing social distancing. How are you and your family doing through this whole we pandemic? We are doing so well. I mean, and this is an incredible luxury. We have a home, we have food, we have family, we have our health. And I am acutely aware of all the people out there struggling for whom this has pushed them close to the bone and in some cases over the edge. We are fine and I am so grateful. You and I have been friends for 13 years. Mm -hmm. We met on the set of a TV show called Community Auditions. Sing it with me. Star, Star of, the of the day. Who will it be? <laughs> I knew you would do it with me. Thank you so much. You that know, wasn't my key, Candy. I remember <laughs> when I first met you, Joyce, I was so starstruck. A real fan of your work. I watched you on WBZ television for decades. You grew up watching me. They sat me next to you as one of the talent judges. And I thought, oh my God. I can't screw anything up. I have to be your friend. Here we are. I treasure your friendship so much. Thank you. And I remember listening to all of your critiques and listening to what a chest voice and, you know, the very specific ways you would critique these singers, you being a singer yourself and thinking, whoa, this chick, <laughs> this chick knows might something. Know I can learn a few things. Your career really is like a playbook for reinvention. There is so much to talk about today. So you were not someone with a dream to be on television. You were a school teacher, a degree in education. Which wasn't my dream either. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I had no idea what I was going to do when I got out of school. All I knew and know is that from the time I was little, all I wanted to do was sing and dance and act and perform and be in front of people. And, you know, I was the president of my class. I made speeches. I won an oratorical contest. I practiced ballet, I played the piano, I was my parish church organist and soloist, and I didn't know what the heck to do with any and all of that. I didn't want that life, though. I didn't think I was talented enough to make it as a performer, but I wanted to be in that world. And I also liked to speak. And my mother told me that I spoke early and very clearly, which I have no doubt about. I mean, it's going to be hard to edit this piece, so just keep that in mind. I was always a talker, and I like words, and I love reading for meaning. I think the universe is full of meaning for us, so excavating for meaning is important. And this is what the arts offer us, and this is what literature offers us, and movies, and theater. So in college, of course, I was a lit major and an education major. 
I believe in majoring in a body of information as opposed to being a communications major, which is a big major now. I say, that's great, but you got a double major. You need something to communicate. You need to be educated. So I got out of school after a degree in English education, didn't know what I was going to do, went on, got a master's degree in English and education, actually went on to get an honorary doctorate from my alma mater, Simmons College, in communications. I didn't know what I was going to do when I got out of school, but I was recruited by the place I'd done my student teaching, which was one of the best high schools in the United States, Brookline High School. And I taught for two and a half years, and it wasn't for me. How did you know it wasn't for you? Every morning that I had to get up at six o'clock and it was, it was dark out and I had to be coherent and I couldn't be my, I'm a night person. <laughs> and then I had to go to a school. I'd just gotten out of 13 years of school. I was back at a school in the dark, in the morning. And I, I just knew everything about it wasn't right for me, except I liked the kids and I liked the material you know, I was trying to teach James Joyce's The Dubliners to freshmen, which was an insane task. You once told me also that somebody invited you to the senior prom. Well, that's true. I looked very, very young. I was only 22 or 23, and I looked 12. To, yeah, I got asked to the one of the proms my second week there, and I had to explain I'd be going, but uh, as, a, as a chaperone, as a teacher... <laughs> I was very close in age to these kids. I didn't feel like I had enough life experience to manage it. And then there were the AWOLs and the discipline issues and the paperwork. It was exhausting and emotionally draining. And I understood that it was a real vocation, whoever would teach. I decided to give it a couple of years and then I quit cold with no idea of what I would do. But I knew that I would be willing to do anything, you know, wait tables or for five years until I found the thing that made my heart beat fast. It is very, very scary to take that kind of a leap of faith. I didn't think it was scary. I felt that I was young. I had no attachments. I could go anywhere. I always knew that there was always possibility that there's always a way to do something that you want to do. You just have to figure out the how. I had enormous confidence in my ability to figure it out. I don't know exactly where I got that, but I think my mother had something to do with it and how much my parents loved me and my brother. And we just felt like we could do whatever we needed to do. And that's a follow-up question. Let's go right there. In terms of your childhood, I know we're both Connecticut girls. You grew up in Bridgeport. What was it like in your house and what was the message? Is this the kind of message you got about confidence? Yeah, the message wasn't even as explicit as that. It wasn't like you have to be confident. My parents just worked hard. They went about their business. My mother was a working woman and my father was proud of the fact that he had a working wife in an era when working wives were not necessarily looked up to. Often it was looked down on. My dad was so proud of her, and she loved working. It actually kind of saved her sanity. She had a lot of energy. She introduced us to the arts, to good food, symphony orchestras, ballet lessons, all of that, you know, music lessons. My mother had a huge appetite for the world and introduced all of us to this. My grandmother was a working woman. She was one of the first members of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, and she started a coat company. So I come from a long line of working women. 
it wasn't a matter of learning to have confidence. It was a matter of learning to work hard to get what one wanted. And I knew that I would work hard to get whatever I wanted. You leave teaching and you end up working for a small ad agency. Tell me that story. Well, I work for a company called Mass Casting Corporation that made TV and radio commercials. They hired me to do that and to assist, but I ended up being the receptionist and I would make coffee and, you know, do all that kind of thing. That was clearly not going anywhere, but it was a job. In the course of that time, two men walked into the office and said, hey, would you like to be in a TV commercial? And I said, oh, sure, why not? And they said, well, we can't pay you, but we could give you a video portfolio. And I didn't know what that was, but I said, great, I'll take it. And I made a commercial for the Plainfield, Connecticut dog racing track. And I had to pretend to be on a date. There was makeup and there were cameras and I had to pretend. And I thought, oh, this is a riot. And then they hand me something the size of a small suitcase, which was a videotape which I had no equipment on which to play. So I used to take this into department stores that had audiovisual departments and try to plug it in somewhere so I could see what was on it. But I didn't know what was on it, and I never got to play it, and I tucked it away in a drawer. And that was your demo tape. That was my demo tape. Little did I know, two and a half years later, I heard about a job on a brand new show called Evening Magazine. And there were three little pointers pointing me to this direction all that summer when I had just quit teaching and I didn't know what I was going to do. And the final one was that my future mother-in-law, I was about to get married also that fall, she was preparing wedding invitations for a woman by the name of Nancy Glass who had a job on a show called Evening Magazine. And she was leaving this show to get married herself and move out of the state. And they hadn't found someone to replace her. And my future mother-in-law said, Joyce, you should audition. And it was the third time I'd heard the name of that show mentioned. Someone at Simmons College had mentioned that to me as well. So I thought, oh, what the heck? And I called them up. And the first thing they said to me was, well, do you have a video portfolio? And, and I you laughed. Said, I said, well, of well, course, of course I, do. I do. And I quickly tore the house apart, looking for this tape, not knowing what was on it. I got all dressed, raced down to the station, got through security, a flap opened up, a hand reached out, I handed them the tape, and I thought, well, that'll be the end of that. And three weeks later, they called and said, we couldn't tell much from your tape. Come for an audition. Prepare an instant weekend. Don't wear black. Don't wear white. Meet us at the Swan Boats at 4.20 Thursday afternoon. And I remember every detail. <laughs> Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. More than 30,000 families and businesses have trusted TechHelpBoston.com since the year 2000. Dave Elmazian, president of Tech Help Boston, with the reasons why. It's really about forging a relationship and having a trusting relationship because your technology is very personal to you. It used to be in the old days that things were private. When you're online, nothing is private anymore. And we want to make sure that that information is kept confidential and with somebody that you trust and you feel comfortable with. You can trust Tech Help Boston to keep your computer and systems running right. Call 781-484-1265 or visit techhelpboston.com. That's techhelpboston.com. It takes teamwork to put a weekly series like this together. I am so grateful to Jordan Rich and Ken Carberry for giving the story behind her success a home at Chart Productions. And to Dan Tebow, our editor from Fast Twitch Media. 
J.C. Valeris at Platinum Circle Media, who handles our social media marketing and so much more. Thank you all for making me look so good. You know, your whole face lights up when you tell this story, Joyce. And truth be told, I know some of those details because as friends, you've told it to me, but it never ceases to amaze me. There's a part of your personality that I want to talk a little bit about, and that is intuition. That little voice inside your head has guided you your whole life. I think it has. And, and sometimes it's hard to hear that little voice. So I've had to train myself to really pay attention to that because there's a lot of clutter in my brain. <laughs> no, really? <laughs> and I'm taking a lot of stuff in all the time. As my brother says, I'm a very volatile person. And whenever I walk into a room, things start happening. I'm like a catalyst for things. You know, I'm always asking the provocative question or having some reaction to something or other. So I've got a lot of stuff that I'm uh, digesting all the time. So the intuition can be quiet, but I know if I'm unhappy. I know if it doesn't feel safe or right to me, if I don't feel good. And I would always urge people to pay attention to what that is and go there because that is the place where the solution to the problem also lies. And, you know, it's the crack where the light can come in. That's a line from a poem. It's a beautiful idea, and it's yeah. true. You go to the tough places. So you show up. So I show up at the Swan Boats. For this audition at the Swan Boats. Tell us the story. Well, I see 10 women there who are tall and gorgeous with modeling portfolios, wearing spike heels, and, you know, I look like a school teacher with a little Peter Pan collar. I'm thinking, whoa, they are not looking for you, Cole Haywick. They are looking for something else, but I'm smart. I was always the smart girl growing up. I was not the pretty girl growing up. Well, we're going to show a picture of you, and you're beautiful, oh, but please. okay. I was the smart girl, and I, I think everybody should grow up is not the pretty girl, the smart girl. <laughs> I think it's better. <laughs> I thought, well, I have an education. I can speak. They'll hire me maybe behind the scenes to produce or whatever. So I got up there. I immediately got nervous, even though I'd done a lot of speaking here and there, but there was a camera and I had a microphone, which of course was true. This was television, but it made me nervous and I forgot everything I'd prepared. I decided to just walk away and I took the mic off. And although I had noticed that the first woman who got up there didn't know what to do with her hands, you know, when she got up, she talked with her hands a lot and she was wearing all white and they had told us, Two things. Yeah, don't wear don't white. Don't wear black. Don't wear white. And I thought, she's wearing all white. This could be easier than I thought. <laughs> so, <laughs> we can cross her out. <laughs> yeah. Like, forget it. You know, I've already got a leg up. But I decided to just, you know, I thought, okay, well, I blew this. Goodbye. And I started to leave. And the producer jumped out of the truck, came running over to me and said, hey, I think you've got something we're looking for. And I said, well, what? Amnesia? I forgot everything. <laughs> he said, no, 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 just get rid of all those index cards that you brought with you and just answer a few questions for us in front of the camera, which I did. And he said, okay, well, we'll call you. And I thought, <laughs> he'll never call me. Several weeks later, I called them on my mother's advice, and they said the producer wants to have lunch with you. We had lunch. We talked about everything, books, travel, you know, whatever. And at the end, I said, Mr. Houghton, Tom Houghton, how will I know if I have the job? He said, Joyce, you have the job. That's why we're having lunch. So talk about slow on the uptake. <laughs> I had no connections, 
no savvy, no street smarts around this or anything. And as soon as I walked into Evening Magazine, I was instantly in my milieu. And I had every skill I needed to do what I had to do. Evening Magazine, a tightly knit group of young, they're up and coming broadcasters. They're popular, they're fun, they're funny, they're engaging. It was almost as if that cast of people caught lightning in a bottle. We did. That idea spread all across the country. We seeded the broadcast landscape, literally. We are still in touch today. That format, which we pioneered, feature magazine format shot in the field was unheard of. It was refreshing. It was informal. We all marvel at what we did and how we did it and how much fun and how it is what people do now on TV. Arts and entertainment is at the core of your success story. So what is it about the arts that makes your heart sing? The arts are the filter through which I view the world. The artists and what they give us to me are just invaluable. I mean, it's very hard to quantify this, but when you go see a show, when you see a play, when you see a movie, when you read a book, when you watch a ballet, when you go to a museum and you see something on canvas, it is an artist who has filtered something about reality through him or herself to us that sheds light on the human condition, that uplifts us, that makes us feel compassion, that makes us feel not alone, that helps us digest the existential crisis of being alive. We find company in it and our humanity in it. This is what artists bring us. So it drives me crazy that we do not cheer our artists the way we cheer our sports heroes. The arts bring so much to our lives and now they're starting to be able to quantify how. Scientists can now look into our brains and see which parts light up so that stroke victims can learn how to walk. Sometimes in 45 minutes, a person's walking gait can be altered if they listen to music with a regular beat. I've seen this. They're exploring this now. What it brings to the economy? Incalculable. Where is the big story on this? Go to the arts factor and look that up. It brings more tourists to our greater Boston area and this region than all the sports teams combined. Where's the story? Where's the news? Why are the arts still so devalued? Drives me insane. Can you I think, tell? <laughs> think, yeah, traditionally, the arts are associated with women. It's considered a frill, and it is hard to quantify. I'm telling you, pay attention. For some people, for some young people, the arts are the only way they can express who they are, a person's individual voice. Ask anybody that question. Talk to any artist. Maybe they didn't do well in school and they end up being Barishnikov. But I'm saying to you that it doesn't even matter if your kid is Barishnikov or Maria Callas or, you know, whoever, Billie Eilish, you know. It matters that the arts give you a way to think creatively outside the box mm. and express your truth in the world. And if you learn how to express your truth and your individuality, you will 
absolutely have greater compassion for somebody else's truth. It helps you see other people's reality. We need this more than ever before in an increasingly technological world. You know, I listen to you as you expound on the beauty of the arts and what it means to you. And therefore, it's not a surprise that you were able to open so many doors and really be a trailblazer for women in arts and entertainment. You become the anchor, a huge success on WBZ television. You're there for decades and decades. They're the leader in the market. And you also were the person who started You Gotta Have Arts. You're the champion for the arts here in Boston. And then you become a syndicated arts and entertainment critic. Talk to us about that. That was completely out of the blue. I was tapped by Roger Ebert and Leonard Moulton on different occasions to co-host shows with them. I did Hot Ticket with Leonard Moulton for two and a half years. I sat with Roger Ebert, Pulitzer Prize winning broadcast TV critic, movie critic. That was the height of professional achievement to me that he and I could sit together as equals and trade points of view. And all credit to Roger for focusing on the work. It was never about his ego or fame, and he certainly could have coasted on any and all of that. I was greatly intimidated. He never gave that a second thought and would argue with me, paid me the respect of having a real conversation every single time. I just didn't want to go to Chicago. <laughs> I didn't want to go to Chicago, and there were other issues involved. Yeah, and but what I, an opportunity. It was an incredible opportunity. There's no shortage of great conversation with Joyce Culhaywick, that's for sure. We'll complete this interview in our next episode of The Story Behind Her Success. So consider this part one of her incredible journey. We haven't even gotten to her favorite superstar interviews, the good, the bad, the funny ones. She'll also tell us what it was like to report from Kensington Palace when Princess Diana died. She watched Prince William and Harry walking behind their mother's coffin. She's also going to talk about being at ground zero right after the towers fell on 9-11. Her mindset after living through three cancer diagnoses. How she gets around obstacles and her answer about what success really means to her may surprise you. Part two of our Joyce Culhaywick interview is totally worth your download. Thank you so much for being a part of the village that listens to this program. You have no idea how grateful I am. Until then... Stay inspired.